Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Artist, author, and entrepreneur Marnie Grundman graciously joins the show today. She wrote Missing, a true story of a childhood lost. This is her story of not only a young girl's survival from suffering, but of rising up against all odds, which she calls survival. Today, you're not only going to learn about something you probably don't know a lot about, runaways, but you'll also hear Marnie share details about her personal journey from a childhood that was stolen from her to becoming the empowered woman she is today. You'll hear firsthand how no matter what your scars or wounds, you too can create a life filled with happiness and love. As Marnie says in her introduction, we all hold the key to self-healing and to our ultimate happiness. I love that. You can get a copy of her book at MarnieGrundman.com or visit Amazon.com and search on Missing a True Story of a Childhood Lost. Welcome, Marnie. Thank you for having me, Michelle. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm great. I'm great. I'm so excited. You know, you and I tried like three times to make this interview happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't say we're not persistent. (laughs) I know. Well, I was thrilled when you reached out to me and said, hey, I've got this story. Um, I was blown away. Um, Typically, I don't I don't like to get too deeply into guests' work. I like to work spontaneously and just be that curious interviewer who doesn't really know much. So that I'm coming from the same standpoint as a listener. But in this case, I read your book. And so it's going to be very much different for me knowing already what you've been through. So um, I'll do my best to ask you questions. So if I miss anything big, please help me out. Oh, I will. (laughs) No problem. So let's dive in. Tell us about where your story began. Like, tell us what was going on at home. Just give us the background on everything that happened. Well, the background is uh, I I was born into an upper middle class home. Um, From the outside, everything looked pretty great. Um, Nobody would have imagined what was going on behind closed doors, which is pretty typical. My mother um, was from that era of the Valley of the Dolls, taking uppers and downers and um, drinking quite a bit as well. So when I came along, she was most likely most of the time on some sort of substance. I think she probably also had some depression. Um, she spent a lot of time sleeping. And I spent my my early years in to my own devices. I mean, I would be found in my crib pretty neglected. Um, and by the time I was three years old, there had been some sexual abuse that started within the family. At the age of five, my mother dropped me out of a two-story window on purpose. Oh my god. Yeah. So that's like <laughs> Tell us tell us about that because I remember you mentioned that to me when we spoke offline before and I was like, "What?" My reaction was a lot bigger. Yeah. <laughs> because it was before I had I had read yeah. the book, but but share with our audience what the hell that was. Um well, d- it, it it had actually been something that now hearing from other people that knew the situation back then from the inside a little bit more that she had evidently planned. 
And she she kind of picked a fight with my brother about going to the store to get cigarettes. Incidentally, he was like 12 or 13 going to get her cigarettes. Oh, God. And this argument started about it was raining out and he's saying it's not. And she's sending me to check and see if it's raining. But she specifically sends me upstairs and tells me to put my arm out the window, which I do. And then, of course, I come back and um, I remember saying, well, it's drizzling, like it's raining a little bit. And she's like livid. They're going at it. She comes up the stairs, check again. You didn't check good enough. And I now lean out the window and I come back in and I, I, I say it's it's raining and um she goes no check again and when i check again she she lifts my legs up she puts me out the window and she dropped me she let go yeah do you remember the feeling of falling yeah yeah i i I remember i remember everything leading up to it i remember the sensation of the fall i was actually afraid of heights for most of my life um, I don't remember the impact, but there's a vague sort of hitting the ground. And then the next thing I remember is that she had me in my baby blanket taking me to the hospital in a taxi. So she didn't call an ambulance. Um, and then I'm Can told- I say that's so fucked up? <laughs> yeah. And like for me now, like it's such a long time ago, but I do recognize clearly it's so fucked up. Excuse my language. Well, you did it. Well, we'll both um, say how fucked yeah. up it is. Yeah, it's it's God. She suffered from obviously a lot of issues, and um, why I, though? What was the reason behind throwing you out the window? It wasn't just that she was pissed at you. What did she? No. What was she doing? No, the uh, apparently the, the the day in the days that followed, um, she was filing a lawsuit against the landlord because there were no screens on the window. So it appears that she did it for financial gain, which is not that shocking to me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you survived. Did you yep. break bones? <laughs> what happened? Uh, both of my arms in three places. So I was in straight casts from pretty much just about my shoulders um, that wrapped around like my hand, like my thumb. How old were you? About five, five five-ish. Wow. You're a tiny little girl. Yeah, tiny little girl. And she clearly wasn't. And at that point, um, it's sometime very close after that, I go to live with my grandparents. And um, well, I mean, she came from somewhere, you know, somebody like that is not isn't born that way she was created sure. and there were a lot of issues in that house um, my grandmother for was a functional alcoholic as they would call them back then um, why did they send you over the why were you sent to the grandparents i don't i don't know i don't know if nobody else in the family was willing to take us um i i really don't know i was so young and nobody in the family tells the truth about anything so asking is never led anywhere. I I definitely had an aunt and uncle who had children around my age that I could have gone with. I don't know why that wasn't an option. It would have been a much better one. Weren't you terrified of her at this point, knowing that she purposely threw you out the window? I was terrified of her long before that, long before that, because she would berate me, yell at me. Um, She had me in such control that I knew to be very quiet. I knew to behave a certain way. Um, actually, a babysitter who has known me since the, she's 
pretty much the only person in my life who has known me since the day I was born. And she related a story to me where she would come to check on me after school. She was 10 years old. And um, her family would sometimes take us in when my mother would take off for the weekend and and leave no food in the house and and hand her like maybe 10 bucks to feed us for the weekend. That kind of thing was going on. But yet you said it was an upper middle class. It was it was almost like, yeah. yeah. So what was that all about? She was just trying to keep up with the Joneses and she was going through a divorce. I don't know what kind of alimony she was or wasn't getting. Um, she definitely had child support and money coming in from the first husband because this was the second one. My father was the second husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a drug problem. So who knows? Right. You know? Who knows where it was really going. And this babysitter came in and and found me in my crib on more than one occasion. And I hadn't been fed, apparently. I was in my crib, in my diaper, eating my own excrement. Not crying, not anything. And she said to me, she said, it was almost as if you knew better. It's almost as if you knew better than to cry. That You were such a good little baby. You were just a good little girl because you knew you had to be. And I'll tell you, when she told me that story, because that's not a memory I have, I I cried for days. I was devastated because I knew how bad it was, but but sometimes you don't know how bad it, it really was. So the foundation my mother laid for me wasn't just berating me and throwing me out of a window. It was also, I don't care what happens to you, yeah. literally. And, and that goes somewhere. And so that was my dynamic with my mother. And uh, by the time that I went to live with my grandparents, um, there, was, there was a day that they, my grandfather took me to see my father. I didn't know it at the time, but I think it was because there were legal documents being signed. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen my father, I mean, in, other than watching him on TV, he was a, a professional bowler. Um, I, I didn't know him. I only knew him by looking through scrapbooks and things like that. And he was so kind to me that day. And I come to find out many years later that he didn't believe I was his because my mother was running around, which explains a lot. Um, at any rate, he was really kind to me that day. I knew who he was or who I thought he was. And when I went back to my grandparents' house from that time until I was about nine years old, I would run away with regularity trying to find him. So I would walk towards the tall buildings. I would, at one point, I took a bus to try to get to him. Um, and of course, I, I, I never managed to find him. So that's how that went. So that's then, that was the thing that started the process of yeah. running away was to try to find your dad. Yeah, that's that's what started it. And then um, my mother was in and out of the picture, and she showed up with a new a new daddy, a new husband. And fortunately for me, he was a really great guy. Like he was amazing. Um, we went to live. We were in Montreal at the time. We went to live in the states. We we moved to Miami, and my run running pretty much subsided for a period of time because I had a daddy that filled the gap. Um, also I had somebody in my life who was a buffer zone between myself and my mother and the only time that she would take off on me like do things to me was when nobody was home and ordinarily if he wasn't home we had um, a housekeeper that lived in so it was okay it wasn't um, it, it wasn't perfect but it was a lot calmer and the abuse was 
fewer and far between. Um, my mother would typically, when we first moved there, she typically send me down to the pool. I was nine or 10 years old by myself. Um, unfortunately, because of the child I was already raised to be, which was a victim, I was molested by the lifeguard there. So oh my God. I went, you know, yeah. today she'd be arrested for leaving a young child by them oh, yeah. by herself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this was a building, mind you, that didn't have a lot of kids in it. I think there was one other little girl in the entire building. Um, and it was, th this was like an old man lifeguard who lived on the premises. And Ugh. he was molesting me and giving me presents. And after the second <sighs> or third time, I I, I had to go somewhere because my mother was sending me down to the pool. And I wasn't allowed to go to the beach, so I started playing in the parking lot. So you didn't you didn't tell beach. her, you didn't tell your new dad Who? that this was going on. Why? Um, well, I think it was around the age of seven or eight. My mother, one of my mother's nicknames was Tramp. So in my mind, it was only going to prove her right that I was dirty and that I was bad, and I believed that it was my fault that that I did something to bring that on. And um, I would have never told her, for sure not. And I would have been afraid to tell my father, my stepfather, specifically because he would have told her. And I, I, I knew it would have backfired. So I kept quiet and I started playing in the parking lot. What about your brother? <laughs> you said you had a brother. He was in military school by this time. Okay. He was in boarding school. And even if he wasn't, I mean, we didn't talk about the things that went on. That was, this, that was our normal so there wasn't anything to talk about. It's all we knew. You know, so it wasn't like I would say to him, oh, do you know what mom did today? We would just never do that. That wasn't our interaction. Yeah. And uh, she divided us a lot as well. Like she divided and conquered. She would pin us against, pit us against each other, which is pretty typical in a household like that. Um, like she would tell him, I know that you did this and that because Marnie told me. And I wouldn't have said a word. But she would be on a fishing expedition. So she really, she knew what she was doing. Like she divided us by, by design. So now as an adult woman, when you look back to this, your reactions, not telling what was going on, you being abused by this lifeguard guy, um, all of this stuff, not talking about it, this, this behavior that was resulting. Um, tell us more about this. Like, as you look back as an adult, what was it? Was it just that you wanted to be loved, fear of oh, yeah. abandonment? Tell us more about that. Well, I mean, as a child, for sure. And I was, I was like the perfect, I had a target on my head. I was desperate to be loved. I was, uh, even that, that babysitter that I refer to, she used to say when she babysat me, I would like snuggle up to her like I couldn't get enough affection. Um, I was desperate for acceptance. My, so I had the lowest self-esteem you could possibly imagine. Um, and I've, I've talked to, I've talked to people that knew me like in boarding school when I was uh, 12, 13 years old and people that I've gone to summer camp with and I've disclosed to them now like, well, they, they know, if not from the book, from just other conversations. And I used to, t I, I've told them recently, you know, I thought nobody liked me and they, they are shocked. And I thought I was just completely unlovable and I was desperate to be loved. And it, it's, it was really sad, like looking back, really, really sad not to know that people actually cared about me. And yeah. I really believed that they didn't. 
that makes me really sad and angry that you weren't loved. So let's talk about what happened after that. When did the running away pick up again? Um, Because you said that it sort of stopped when she brought the new guy around. Yeah, it, it slowed down. It picked up again around 11 when, whenever he would travel. That would tend to be when I would go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would only run for short periods of time. The police would usually find me. And would you uh, be running to try to find your other dad? No, now I was just running from her. Okay. Now we were in Miami. We were living in a house there. And um, she would have done something particularly, you know, whether it was destroying my room and ripping it apart and just going into a tirade or, you know, threatening me in some way or whatever it was that I was afraid of. Um, so I would run for the day. When my, when my stepfather passed away, I was 12 years old, um, the running picked back up like gangbusters. She married somebody else four months after he died, um, who was also a nice guy. Like, it's incredible to me how she managed to get these really great husbands. Wow. Um, thankfully for me, but at this point, he his presence wasn't enough to stop me from running. I ran whether he was there or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the same relationship as I had had with my previous stepfather. And... Because of the situation that I was bred to be in at this point, when I was 12 years old, I ran away and I stayed out all night because I ended up getting involved with the wrong guy. I got in a car with him and that's how I lost my virginity. He took me to the woods and he raped me through the night. (sighs) And when I was returned home the next day, he drove me home. He knew where I lived. Uh, As I walked, you still don't, you don't know how he knows where you lived. Or did you tell him? Uh, No, I told him. Like, I was a completely cooperative victim other than asking him to stop when he was actually raping me and crying. But after it, like, he had me in the woods all night. We got up at at dawn or whatever it was. um, And he said, I'm going to take you home now. And and he goes, tell me where where do you live? And I didn't even skip a beat. You know, it was probably looking back, it was a relief that he was going to take me home. And um, it didn't occur to me at the time that now he knew where I lived. Like that, there was no no thought process there. I think I was probably in shock. And um, for sure, when, when he dropped me off, like he wasn't in front of the house, but he dropped me off and I walked through the door and my mother was standing there. My aunt was behind her. I don't know where my stepfather was. And my mother just kept looking at me. Who the fuck do you think you are is all she could say. I've been gone 24 hours. God knows what I look like. I mean, because we'd been in the woods. I must have looked disheveled. I must have been filthy. Um, and I went to my room silently and crawled into bed. And I, I don't even think I had the energy to cry. I just, I just fell asleep in, in pain and, and numbness all at the same time, right? And uh, I never told. I, di- I never told anyone um, other than a boyfriend at boarding school. And I told my brother when I was in my early 20s and my brother called me a liar. So... There was that. I can't believe you didn't tell anybody. The first thing out of, out of I'm thinking of, as you've experienced it's such a traumatic situation that when you walk in the door, you're like, you've no idea what just happened to me. Yeah, that's what a normal response would be. 
but I wasn't living in an, in, in an environment where speaking up was allowed. I, I didn't have a voice of my own until maybe 15 years ago, unless it was to defend my children. Then I have a big loud voice <laughs> you know then the bear comes out then yeah the, bear comes the out bulldog like, marnie you know, marnie bulldog marnie bulldog and i was known <laughs> for it in their school like i was known for it like don't 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 step on the toes well, yeah here. it's like you're you it's know? like a rabid dog it's like when you when you abuse a dog enough times they're gonna eventually bite your hand off yeah yeah absolutely let's talk about runaways and i want to do this before we get into more about your life on the streets because there was one giant time when you were like I'm done and you were gone gone you didn't yeah. come back yeah so before we get there I want you to demystify for the audience runaways and what you've seen over the years as common misperceptions about them or stigma that's associated with them well, the biggest m misperception about them is that they're just running away from home because they didn't get their way that day. You know, they got grounded or they couldn't go to the dance and, and that's why they ran away from home. Or, um, you know, they're, they're trying to manipulate the family mm. or take control of the family by running away and creating havoc. Just being and brats. Just being brats. And uh, um, they're labeled even like spoiled brats or rebellion. When you really put this in perspective, if you think about your own life and think about how, you know, you go to bed at night and you're in a nice, cushy, soft bed. If you need to use the bathroom, it's right down the hall or maybe en suites. If you're hungry, you can go to the kitchen and, you know, grab something out of the refrigerator. These are very simple, everyday, basic things that we all have. Now, think about a child who prefers to live on a park bench with no food, no bathroom, no nothing rather than having those, at least those minimal creature comforts. You have to really ask yourself, why is that? Because when a child runs away from home, they're not preparing, they don't have a bunch of money with them, it's usually a knee-jerk reaction, and they're ending up on the streets, and they don't know where their next meal is coming from, they don't know what lies ahead, but they do know that the abuse that they were suffering at home is stopped. Mm-hmm. And that's a better alternative to them. So putting themselves in danger is a better alternative than staying in an abusive environment yeah. Yeah. and having Be your basic needs met. Yeah. And well, and there's two parts of that. They don't really recognize the danger that they're putting themselves in because the danger they're running from is is too significant for them to think that through. And the other part of it is, as and I can tell you from my own experience, it's a lot more palatable to be abused by someone that's not supposed to love you than to be abused by someone who is. Mm. It's you know, there's because there's no emotional component to it. They're not supposed to love you, you know. Right. So there's something more palatable about that, unfortunately, but it's true. Let's talk about the time that you snapped and you ran away for good. What happened? Um, I had been in boarding school for the, the whole school year prior to the final runaway. And what I gained by being in boarding school was normalcy. I had, I, I lived in a smaller dorm because I was, I was younger. So I was in middle school and I had dorm parents and every day was like Groundhog Day. It was the same, you know, um, go to school, you have study hall, like everything's calm. Nobody's, nobody's screaming and yelling at you. No one's throwing things at you. No one's molesting you. Very simple, everyday life. And when I got 
through that school year, when I came home for the summer, my mother informed me through a, a series of events that I would not be going back. Oh, God. So she gave you like a little taste of safety and freedom. She gave and then me took the, it away. And then took it away. And I, I snapped. I couldn't go backwards. Now I knew, I, I knew a different way of living and I literally lost it. Like something in me just gave way and um, I ran away. And this time I stayed gone three and a half years. So, you know, I did get better at it, obviously. So tell us about the girl you invented because you didn't keep your own name, right? No. Well, I did the first like week, I think. And what happened was because I was giving my real name, people were trying to like call the police and like save me, mm. <laughs> not knowing they weren't that saving they weren't me. saving you. They were sending you back into the cage. Yeah. So I, I figured out very, very quickly that I had to pick up a new name. And there was I'm trying to remember the author right now. And I have it in my book. Judith um, Krantz. Ju- Judith Krantz. <laughs> so she had a character. Thank you. Scruples. <laughs> See, this <laughs> is one of the upsides of reading the book ahead of time. <laughs> This is one of the upsides. Um, So there was a character in the book. Her name was Valentine, and she sounded very, like, strong and accomplished. And I admired her when I read that book, which, by the way, I probably shouldn't have been reading at that age. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, but that's no big shock after everything else. Yeah, right. So I took that name, and I told people I was 18. And, And by the way, I mean, I was at the time 13, and I looked 11. And uh, but I was telling people I was 18 and that that my family was dead, that I didn't have any relatives. And that was my story. And I stuck to it. So give us a little snapshot of where you went, where you stayed. I know in the book, you you talk about a lot of different adventures, people you met along the way. But give us like the snapshot of those that time where you went, where you stayed. Uh, well, initially, I mean, the first the first few days were I was on the beach, and then I transitioned to a park bench because um, I realized that I, if I were near like a public park, which is where I went, I, I could have access to a bathroom. Mm-hmm. And um, I spent several days there, and sometimes I would go to there was a Seven Eleven in the area. Sometimes I'd camp out there, um, hoping that somebody would give me something to eat, a carton of milk, loose change. I wouldn't beg. <laughs> I was too proud to beg. I can only imagine what I look like, but I wouldn't beg. Um, and then as I Weren't you back, scared? I was numb. I, I was numb. I was tired. And I was just hungry. Like, the, I don't think fear was really... There were moments that I had fear, but not in those moments. I don't remember feeling fear at all. Wow. I remember just feeling pretty much nothing other than lost and not knowing what I was going to do next. And um, it so happened that when I was on the park bench, a prostitute took me in, a middle-aged woman who had a drug problem. And I didn't know that she was a prostitute. I didn't know she had a drug problem. She took me in for a few days and fed me and um, tell us what she what she said to you she's um well she's she was a middle-aged black woman well I don't think she was middle-aged I think she looked middle-aged and um she finally said to me like she said to me do you know what I do and I'm like 
nodding my head no and she's like I'm a prostitute like and I'm like blank you know like huh you know (laughs) (laughs) she's like I sell my body and she said and I sell my body so that I can do drugs because I have a drug habit and she said and this is no place for a little white girl and that's why I made the mention (laughs) that she was a black woman otherwise it wouldn't Right, it's irrelevant. Yeah, it's irrelevant to me. But because she said that to me, and she said to me, "I want you to promise me you're going to go home." And so I said, "I promise." And as I walked out of her place, what I promised myself was that I wouldn't do drugs and I wouldn't sell my body. And so that was the beginning of me um, surviving, really, not knowing that that's what it meant for me, but that's why I survived. Cause if I had gone down that path, who knows if I'd be here today. Right. So she was like an angel. Oh, absolutely. And was like, Hey, here's your warning. Total guardian angel. And, mm-hmm. and might I add somebody who had nothing to give and gave everything she had, you know, and, and those are those moments that, that, you know, when somebody is doing something for somebody else that they don't realize the impact it might have. Totally. And and that changed my path. I ended up, so I went from the park bench, I found an abandoned building on, on in Miami Beach in the area that is now South Beach and is also gorgeous, wasn't so gorgeous back then. Mm-hmm. And um, somehow I ended up meeting this other girl that was a runaway and which is not so uncommon runaways tend to find each other homeless youth find each other Hmm. um and she knew the ropes really well and we upgraded to a sauna in an apartment complex which was a lot better than the abandoned building or being outside or being outside in the elements and she taught me how to like steal clothes and food and so we were no longer hungry and we were no longer dirty and we had changes of clothes um so it was it was it was different we also got arrested a couple of times (laughs) uh one for breaking and entering because we were living in a house that we thought belonged to these guys that that were staying in the house the guys took off and apparently they were also just crashing there so if you can imagine this SWAT team was outside of the house literal SWAT team and you're just a a young teenager I'm I'm 13 years old I like I've seen a SWAT team on TV (laughs) (laughs) like there's a SWAT team and you had such a I mean this is it's unbelievable yeah unbelievable and they have like you know they're full gear and we see them going by the windows the guys who were in the house that we were with were, were cocaine dealers so these guys were raiding the house for cocaine we didn't know that um so anyway, we opened the door and imagine their shock. Like <laughs> two two young women, yeah. Like, uh huh. <laughs> you could see it. You could actually see it. And I was terrified. And and Lori said to me, the other girl said to me, she goes, "You stick. You stick with the name you got, and you tell them that you're 14." <laughs> She's smart. She was smart. She helped yeah. you. She well, she had been through it. She'd she'd seen youth hall, she'd seen foster homes, she'd seen it all. And so I did. And we were we ended up in youth hall for a few days, I think, and then I ended up I th- this was the time that I ended up in the foster home. And so when I ended up in the foster home, I ran from that because two of the girls in the foster home threatened my life the first night I was oh well, there was no night. I mean they threatened me as I was there. And uh, so it was almost like no matter where you went, 
there was an element of not being safe. The only place oh, so yeah. far that I've heard that you felt safe was when you were at boarding school. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's all. I mean, um, for the first year of my my time on the streets, they were on the streets. You know, it was there was no roof over my head that had any, you know. Um, that I had any control over until when I was 14, I ended up being a cocktail waitress and that was my first job. And I stayed, no, it wasn't my first job, but it was my first job that I kept. (laughs) And I ended up staying employed after that. So I was able to house myself and that changed everything for me because now, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't at risk in the same way. Mm -hmm. I was making some sort of money to be able to eat and keep a roof over my head. In this lifestyle that you were living on the streets and kind of doing this surviving uh, element to things, how did strangers treat you? Did you find that you were constantly victimized? Um, I wasn't constantly victimized. I, I, I think I got smarter. And I, and I was more, I, I was, I, I I was more careful. Um, not always. There were two or three isolated incidents that occurred, but for the most part, I was okay. Um, there was the guy that I went out to dinner with, and then took me, you know, um, down a, a dark road and and raped me. You know, that was the second time that I had been raped in my in, in my teenage life um and then there was once where i was in a car with someone and he he started to try to but i happened to have a gun which was i remember when i read that and i was like yeah (laughs) it wasn't loaded but he didn't know that and it's a good thing it wasn't because i probably would have shot myself instead but we 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 picked up this gun from this place that we were staying and um and there was another time somebody tried to break into an apartment we were staying in and i defended myself so i finally had gotten to the point where yeah, where you were like no more where I was like no more and I was I was willing I didn't I didn't go into the frozen mode which was where where I had been so often as before. a little girl yeah so during this period of time you're doing your thing on the streets making friends getting to a point where you're building this inner strength where you're like all right and you're getting super savvy street smart did your family try to find you was there any way that you know you felt scared that they were going to find you? I didn't feel scared that they were going to find me because my mother had me convinced that when I would run away from home, nobody really cared. And so I really believed that A, they would be better off without me and B, that they would just forget about me because that's how little value I had for myself. And um, indeed, they were looking for me, but not quite the way you would picture a family of a missing child looking for that child. My family had enough money to, you know, take out a billboard, for example, and to do any number of things. And they made little flyers and they w- they took to the streets looking for me and handing them out. Did you my, see those flyers? I never saw those flyers. But my boyfriend from boarding school, his family hired two detectives from Interpol and flew them to Miami and had them looking for me for almost two years. And he gave up like going back to school and was looking for me actively as well. I, of course, didn't know that This doesn't say anything good about Interpol because over two years they couldn't freaking find (laughs) you. But we also have to look at we have to look no at, offense to Interpol, yeah, no, but no come on. To them, but they were. But my point was like they were, 
this is a family that's not even related to me that's met me twice in their life and they're using their resources to find yeah. me when my own family wasn't. And this is, to put this in context a little bit, I mean, this is, you know, 1980, 81. There's no computers. There's cell phones are like, if you have a cell right. phone, you're Like wealthy. they can't track your phone or they any can't, of that. Yeah, it's not like now where you can find people because you're posting on social media and there's Amber Alerts and all of these mm-hmm. resources. Mm-hmm. And um, were you on the side of a milk carton? You know, there there were no milk cartons yet. It was pre milk carton. Ah. And actually, um, the Center for Missing and Exploited Children what didn't come into play until 1984. Um, wow. And 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 what's interesting about that is my grandmother had told me that she was in touch with them. Well, I was home by then. Hmm. <laughs> so this is the kind of now thing who's the liar. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that existed in my family. Lies. Lies. And abuse. Lies and, and abuse and gaslighting and scapegoating and all of the things that go along with that. Yeah. And because I happened to be the child that actually ran away from home, I was an easy target. You know, this I did a series of episodes about narcissists and narcissistic parents and how they can uh, really affect their children, you know, with the gaslighting and all of that. And, it, you know, it's interesting to see, too, your mom with the addictions to the drugs and the alcohol and all of that stuff as how that affected you in terms of not feeling loved, feeling abandoned, all of those things. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, the the one good thing it did for me, though, is that I always remember feeling like she was always out of control. So even if I hadn't been taken in by the prostitute, I still would never have done drugs. I don't know that I wouldn't have sold my body, but I do know I would have never done drugs because I had decided that way before that. Yeah, because you um, saw how it had an effect on her and you were like, I'm not going to be like that. Her and even my brother. I mean, her and my brother used to steal drugs from each other. You know, my brother was like, um, God, 15, 16 years old, and they're stealing pot from each other and pills from each other. Like, he's doing quaaludes and, like, stealing them from her ashtray in her room. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, real healthy. (laughs) Yeah. and But you didn't know. You didn't know that it wasn't healthy. Yeah, I don't, well, I knew they were drugs, but that's that's all I knew. Like, right. I didn't know that everybody else's house wasn't like that. <laughs> I had an inkling, like, when I would go to my aunt and uncle's house, it, it was different, and I always wanted to stay and live there. There was one of my aunts, I really wanted her to be my mom kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I had brief glimpses and an inkling, but I didn't have enough over the long term to realize that not everybody's house was like that. Yeah. Now, I hate to fast forward through all of the stuff that you experienced while you were living on the streets, um, but I want to leave it as a mystery for people to pick up your book. Um, But I want to know how you ended up transitioning off the streets and back to real life. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't really a transition. Um, I was 17 years old when I got pregnant with my eldest daughter. And um, when a 17-year-old child has a baby, in order for me to receive any sort of benefits from, at that time, social services, they have to report to that child's parents that they've had a baby. And so I was sent back home. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was sent back home, but now I'm 17. It's a lot. It, it, it's different. It's not different. So, so you were on the streets for four years. 
I was on the streets for the better part of four years. Yeah. That's a long time. That is and it's your formative years in a lot my, of ways. And and also living under a different identity. So think about this. Like think about a kid in high school who's just trying to figure out who they are <laughs> yeah. and where they fit in to right. their high school environment. Here I am. I'm a teenager, not in a high school environment, living under an assumed name, trying to figure out where I fit in. Wow. It's a lot. That you know, is that, a lot. That, that's a lot. And I didn't realize how much it was until I started to write the book. And it really made me examine what I went through. So let's talk about that. Why did you write the book? What made you make the decision like, I'm going to share this experience? I had wanted to since the time that I came home. I, I had wanted to because there was nothing out there for me to identify with. And and I, I felt that there was a gap there. And I think I just finally got to the point um, a couple of years ago when I really sat down and started writing seriously where I, I was not only ready, but I felt like there's a, such a need for this and that this is not a topic that we're discussing enough. We have so many kids on the streets right now and we have an epidemic where um, sex, you know, sex trafficking is concerned and a lot of these children are being victimized and taken into these rings. So I felt like it was just really the right time mm-hmm. to be able to give something back. I, I wish that somebody had done that for me yeah. And I, I think that educating people is is the way to help stop this epidemic. Absolutely. That's why you're on this podcast. Absolutely. So what happened when you went back home with your new baby? Um, how did you deal with being around your mother, which... I guess we should let the listeners know that you call in the book the evil one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 let's let's let them know why. So there was a scene that I was writing and I was becoming so very very angry. Up until that point I was writing and calling her my mom. And I finally real like I had to separate myself from her because while I talk about the things that she did, the book is not vindictive and that's not the point of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I call her. It's almost tongue in cheek to make myself calm down. And create a character. <laughs> create a character and mm-hmm. separate from it a little bit. Um, so when I when I first came home, I actually didn't come home. We they flew me to Montreal because um, everybody was in Montreal, and my mother and my stepfather and my grandparents were still living in Miami. My my brother was uh, just um, it was going to be his engagement party, so everybody was there, and it was one of the only times that I can remember my mother actually throwing her arms around me and saying, I love you, which I found to be very confusing. Of course. And and I was really happy about it at the same time. It didn't take long to deteriorate, though, because within the first couple of days, there were comments being made like, you know, look what you did to the family. Hmm. You know, where did you go? What did you do? But in the context of it wasn't what happened like what you it wasn't caring it was basically flipping it what did you do yeah um there were cousins and people that were angry with me for running away because they didn't understand they were my age at the time Mm -hmm. and so how it impacted them i'm sure it hurt them and they didn't have the the understanding to know that i was hurting and that's what caused it and how'd you uh, get away how did I get away from that? Like being back into this, plugged back into this family. 
I, I didn't get away initially. What I actually wanted to do was stay in Montreal. My mother was going to go back to Florida and my aunt was going to take me into therapy. Like she was the one who she knew something was wrong and she wanted to to intervene. My mother refused. I was 17 and I could have said no looking back, but I couldn't because I had no voice. So I, I went right back into that little girl that wow. did exactly what I was told to do. I, I understand that at a, a much, much lower level in terms of whenever I go back home, I immediately turn into like age 15. Yeah, like we do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird. You fall back into those those roles. You really, really do. And it took me a lot of years not to. And I went back to Miami with my mother and my stepfather. I, um, my, my room, which had been packed up like nine months after I left, was now a guest room. So I was staying in my guest room room. And about a week into it, wow. my stepfather came in and said, listen, we're going we're gonna to move you into one of, um, one of the villas. My grandfather was a part owner of some hotels and villas. And we're going to move you into one of those because um, it, this is not good for your mother. Like, it's going to be better if you live elsewhere. I've been oh, home Wow. A week. Wow. Yeah. 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 And they had turned your bedroom into a guest room. Yeah, like it, like there was a suitcase of stuff of mine left over um, that was, you know, that I was given. And uh, a lot of stuff was given to Goodwill or dispersed within the wow. family. Right. Yeah. So it was like uh, she was just like, okay, she's gone. That's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think she liked, and I've said this before, I think she liked being the mother of a missing child. Like she was a victim instead wow. of people that's understanding she was the perpetrator. Yeah, that's definitely a, um, as I've learned through other episodes about narcissists, Oh yeah, that is a tactic that they use. They play the victim as though they were the ones who yep. got hurt. And they are master manipulators. Yes. Master, master, master manipulators. So eventually, I mean, I, I went through ups and downs as I'm a 17-year-old mother. Um, eventually, I met my ex-husband and... Um, as it turns out, he had a background in psychology. He was a really solid guy. And he was the first person who said to me, don't you know that most people, Marnie, like look at when a 13-year-old runs away from home and they realize there's something wrong in the home? And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, I don't uh, realize that. Yeah. And um, it's because of him that I ended up going through therapy and, and really beginning to understand how messed up everything was in my house. And I ended those relationships. I, I didn't want to end all of them. But as it happens with a lot of children who come from abusive environments like this, when you end one relationship, the other ones follow behind that one because they don't want to admit to the abuse that was going mm -hmm. on. So have you forgiven everybody, especially the evil one? Uh, I love that word. <laughs> love, hate that word. Um, so I don't really do the forgiveness thing. I, I don't hold a grudge and, and I understand that for most people when they hear, do you forgive? It's, it's not just not holding a grudge. It's letting go and all of that stuff. For me, when I hear the term forgive, it means somehow sending a message that that was okay. Mm. And I can't, I will not do that. I could do it, but I will not do it. So I don't hold a grudge. I do feel that, you know, my mother was also a victim of her upbringing and unfortunately wasn't able to break the cycles. And, and in, in that way, I, I feel sorry for her. Um, 
and I've let it go. You know, it, it's it's done. She can't hurt me anymore. She can't do anything to me anymore. I have my children. I have my family, and and I'm good with that. So. When you think about how you react now in your relationships, how has this experience changed the way you approach your family that you have now, your separate family? Um, Well, I mean, with my children, my children and I are close and there's nothing that we don't talk about or can't talk about. That's great. So what, what, what was different there for me with my children was that because I had no one to go to, I wanted to make sure they had someone to go to. Mm -hmm. So it was like living opposite day every day. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's, that's how, how that, that worked out. And then with other members I have, like my stepmom, I talk to quite a bit. I'm I'm pretty close to her and I'm very open with her and she's probably the closest person I have in my life right now in terms of like on my father's side of the family. And so, you know, I I I am much better at expressing myself and getting my needs met and not feeling like the world is going to fall apart. Right. So what happens when you get triggered? Because, you know, for for anyone who's done the work and has gone through therapy and figured out what their childhood traumas, and I'm going to put that in quotes, because it's not, it's not always at the level that you've experienced. But um, sometimes worse, sometimes worse. Yeah, sure. But they get a handle on them, and they can identify them, but then they're still triggered by them. What are some of the things that you do to manage your reactions when it comes to not feeling like you're being loved or feeling like you're about to be abandoned, um, or things like that? I have to talk to myself. (laughs) I know that sounds really funny, but it's true. I have I have like a little conversation. And I I have to put things back into perspective. Um, It was really interesting, actually, because I always have a terrible time over the holidays. And most victims do because, you know, you have that pressure of the picture of what you what it's supposed to be. And Mm. we don't have that. And I've had my fair share of holidays completely alone Um, and this past holiday I was able to go and see two of my three children two of them live in the States and one of them lives in Australia and I was really excited about going yet I was still really depressed and really feeling like weepy and so I had to sit down for a minute and I had to think wow I'm actually getting to do something I really want to do I'm not going to be alone for the holidays I get to see the kids and my grandkids and have like this great time why am I so upset and I realized that that feeling is just so deeply embedded in me of not having that picture perfect holiday ever in my life that it's a sense of loss no matter what and it might always be and that's a trigger right there and so what I do is I have to I have to be in you have to be in touch with your body and and your mind and you have to let yourself grieve and feel sorry for yourself what do you say it's okay yeah, it's okay. And I'll have a meltdown and I'm okay with it. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. really, that's the honest truth. If I have to lock myself away for 24 hours and cry and 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 just shut down so that I can let it all out, that's what works for me. And, you know, if I do that, then it's gone as opposed to trying to push it off and push it off mm. and push it off and or then run I'm away. Just, or run away, which is, you know, my famous MO. So sure, um, I get that, you know, I've really had to, to do a lot of work on that. So to stay put, to face your feelings, yeah, to face whatever situation 
is presented to you and to just deal with it head on. Yeah. Yeah. So what is, is this Sir Thrival? This is Sir Thrival because this is being aware of what's going on and then being able to get the best out of life because you're processing it and letting it go. So tell us about how you feel now writing this book, being in this situation where you can, you've identified all of your triggers, you've gone through hell and back. Yeah. How do you feel now? I feel empowered (laughs) for the most part. And I feel a little restless because this is all still a really new part of my life right now. And um, so, it, in a way, there's st- I'm not good with uncertainty, and I still have a little uncertainty. But I feel more than anything, I feel empowered, and I feel really proud of myself. Absolutely, I feel, I feel like if you were here, I would be high fiving <laughs> you and hugging you. <laughs> Virtual ones right now, but like <laughs> totally. I feel like I've done exactly what I'm supposed to do, and that I'm on the path that I'm meant to be on. And, and there's a lot of comfort in that. And I need that. Absolutely. I need that. And you wrote this book, and now you're going to be helping other recovering runners heal. So what is the message that you'd like to leave for anyone who's out there listening who may know somebody who is a runaway? Oh, who may know somebody who's a runaway. Or um, who has been one. Or who, who has been one. I think, you know, the, the biggest message that they... I would say is that you're not a damaged person and that it's a miracle that you survived whatever it is that you had to do to survive the streets. I've been there, done that, and I understand it. And that you need to grieve your losses because you were robbed. You know, what happened to you and you ending up running away from home, you were robbed. You were robbed of a childhood, of of the everyday normal things that most people have in their life. And you have a right to feel sorry for yourself so that you can grieve and work your way through it. And then you won't feel sorry for yourself anymore. Then you'll embrace how strong you are. What about the people who know a runaway. Maybe they're one of those strangers that you encountered along your journey who would give you food and be nice to you and not try to hurt you. Um, well, I mean, if you if if you're housing a runaway, good for you. I mean, it's not in the law. We know this, but um, if if you're trying to help a runaway, the best thing that you can do to help them is to help them get into counseling and help them to be self sufficient. And there are some really great organizations like Covenant House, for example, mm-hmm. that help these children and don't just go, okay, we're we're returning you home. They recognize that a lot of times these children can't go home, but at least they can give them a safe haven and they're trained to be able to do that mm-hmm. and to look for for resources for these kids and and don't you know don't be the one that don't that, throw them into a foster system yeah don't throw them into a foster system don't throw them back home um put them in in a situation where they're with other children that are like them in terms of runaways because the foster system isn't great as we know mm-hmm. any final thoughts for the listeners out there about your incredible journey and the awesome woman that you are now. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, my final thought would be that I am, I, I'm not extraordinary. I'm like everybody else. And the reason that I want to point that out is because we, we all go through things and we all have it within us to, to get through those things. I'm no more special than anybody else. You know, I, it just so happened that I survived and that I've taken the time to want to build a better life. And if that's what you want to do, you can do the same thing. 
I love that message. Everybody out there listening, please go pick up this book. It's riveting. It's called Missing, A True Story of a Childhood Lost. It's a quick read, too, because I know I couldn't put it down. It's available on Marnie's website, marniegrundman.com. Marnie, you're an amazing person to me, and I'm so glad that I can now say that I know you and that you took the time to come on Nothing Off Limits. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.